to introduce and to welcome uh, Brian Derringer. Brian is a pastor and on staff with Mission to the World, which is the mission agency of our denomination, headquartered down in Atlanta. Uh, Brian uh, went, uh, I believe you went to Covenant Seminary, is that right? RTS Jackson, where I went, okay. Um, and so he has studied, he is an ordained pastor, has ministered in a PCA churches in Greensboro and overseas, and is now ministering to missionaries uh, all around the world. It's scary, I'll just be honest with you, when I know, I knew Paul Koyster, I know Paul Koyster, and so when uh, I was approached to say, hey, would you let Paul preach? It's like, sure, I know Paul. As a pastor and as a fellow pastor, you just don't hand off your pulpit to anybody because you don't know what's going to come out, quite honestly, and it can do great damage to the work of the gospel and to the work of the church. Over the course of this weekend, God has so encouraged me through hearing Brian and through just his passion for Christ. And so we welcome you this morning to our pulpit to come and to minister to us today. Welcome. Let's welcome him today. I'm assuming Bill stands down here, or you stand up there? You stand up there? Can everybody see me? All right, I'm going to stand down here then. Just a little while ago, I was in Kenya, Nairobi, and um, visiting a church that was located in a slum. I'd never done anything like this before. My field of service has been Europe, and uh, I have seen cobblestone streets and I have drunk strong coffee, and I have eaten the best croissants you've ever seen in your life and tasted, Uh, but I'd never been to a slum before. Uh, I was to preach that day, and the pastor and his wife led me into the slum through the field that was at the base of the garbage heap upon which the small town had been built and where the church was located. When you have a water flowing down off of the garbage heap, everything that is in the garbage heap flows down with the water into the swamp at the bottom of the hill. And of course, with many people living on the hill, uh, human waste is part of the equation. So you can get a little bit of an idea of what it is to walk into this location And uh, there are no bridges, and there are no pathways that are elevated. And uh, I was to walk behind a pastor and his wife and step on the stones and walk across the the swamp. And the pastor kept saying, don't run, don't run. You know, and uh, the wife was saying, don't look down, don't look down. (laughs) And, uh, of course, I ran, and I looked down, and my foot went right into the slime. And, uh, you know, I recovered and uh, headed on up into the, uh, to the town garbage heap sort of thing where people lived. Got up to the church and the pastor's wife uh, bent down and she said, let me wash your shoe. And uh, I was a little put back by that. I was not wanting her to do that. I wanted to do that myself. And she looked up at me with a little bit of an angry stare and she said, let me wash your shoe. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So we, uh, we had the worship service, I preached. 
And we left out a different way, and along the way I saw a lot of things that I'd never seen before. I passed by a little chicken coop kind of area where there was a small child laying in there, and I smelled the child long before I saw the child. I passed by another spot where a little girl was squatting over the little stream that flows down through the center of the pathway where the human, uh, the human waste goes, and she was poking into the, into the slime. And, uh, and when I got up close to her, I saw that she was trying to retrieve a shoe out of the slime that, that she could have and, and clean up and use. Uh, I looked into people's homes, if you can call them homes. They're just little boxes without lights and, and um, wondered what it would be like to, to live in a place like that. As I came out of the slum and uh, we started walking back towards the car, a little boy took a liking to me. He was a little kid, maybe four years old, something like that. And uh, for some reason he was interested by me and followed me. And we got just to the edge of the field that was leading over to where the car was parked. I looked down at him. He was just like that little girl who was squatting over the stream. Uh, his face it was matted with uh, mucus from his nose. It was just green slime that nobody had cleaned off. And, and he was dirty and smelly. And as I was walking along, I felt that little hand reach up and grab my hand. It was a slimy hand. And I have to tell you, I was a little revulsed. I mean, when he grabbed my hand, the, my first reaction was to pull it back. And I didn't pull it back, but that's what was going on inside of me. I wanted to pull my hand back. I didn't want that kid with his slimy, AIDS, mucus hand in my hand. And as I was kind of wrestling that with that in myself, walking across the field, the Lord was speaking to me, not in an audible voice, but this is what was happening in my mind as I was thinking about that. I thought, you know, I heard the Lord say, hey, I'm holding your hand. And it's just as slimy as is. We just came from Sunday school. We were talking about uh, what is the gospel. And when we talk about grace, one of the things we have to understand about grace is we can't really appreciate it until we realize how slimy our hand is. We don't appreciate the gospel of grace. We don't appreciate what Christ has done for us until we're willing to look at the holiness of God, until we're willing to understand how far we fall short of his holiness, how slimy we are, how much God has loved us in taking us on to be uh, his children. One of the things that we... Uh, struggle with in teaching and preaching on grace, which Mission to the World does all over the world. Uh, it is a core value for our organization. We have adopted this as a core value, not because it is all that God is, is, is a God of grace. There are many other things that he is. But what we see all over the world is people preaching legalism, preaching rules, preaching obedience, uh, preaching conformity, preaching that you have to follow the leader who's in charge. That he is, the, he is the boss, and that would be the pastor. We see this all over the world. We see it in our own PCA churches. People who are burned out from trying to keep up with what they believe are the obligations of fulfilling their membership vows in the church. 
And there's a sense in which we need to return to the value of the grace of God. Understanding our need for him, understanding that it's not something that we can fix on our own. My son is in construction, and uh, one day he asked me to come out and see his uh, newest thing. He was working on some stone pillars at the front of this big piece of property, and uh, he was real proud of that, and he asked me to drive out and look at the, uh, look at the property. And when I got out there, uh, something had happened while he was away. It was a windy day. And apparently they had a little fire to burn some brush. And it had gotten out of hand. And the sparks had gone into the field. And there was a line about 300 yards long of brush fire going across this piece of property. Of course, Dad, you know, Josh was looking at me like, oh, the one time I bring you to my place, you know, it's on fire. You know. And there was one guy out in that field with a shovel going along the line of fire, trying to tamp it out. But it was so far beyond anything that he could handle. It was just ridiculous. And that's how it is for us as we approach our sanctification, as we approach our need for a Savior. It is so far beyond us that what we need is a Savior. Now, one of the problems with preaching grace is... uh, you get criticized sometimes that it's a little too easy. You, know, you preach grace, 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 you know. And what you're going to end up with are people who don't work anymore. You know, they don't do anything for, for ministry. You're just all about, you know, basking in the hot tub of grace. Right? Well, the last message today, we've already preached the messages here. And so it's a little bit off to just give this message but there's, it's been built on a foundation of talking together this week on, first of all, uh, God's love, which is the foundation of, of grace. We talked about surrender, which is the response, our response to God's grace. We talked about repentance, which is a kind of surrender and the posture in which we live our lives as believers. And then this morning, we just worked on defining the gospel of grace, why we need it, what it does for us. This last talk is the talk that takes this foundation that we've built and explains that it doesn't stop there, that, you know, it's, it's, more, like, it's more like this. You know, it's not just me hang, hanging off of God's hand here, my little slimy hand in his hand, and, and, and appreciating his love But, you know, the little kid next to me, I won't touch him. Neither is it me reaching out for this little kid and in my own strength and my own effort, you know, hanging on to his hand and doing all of this without any connection to God. But it's like this. That's how we live. And if any part of this is missing, we haven't appropriated grace. We haven't understood grace. A grace-filled life is a life that's reaching out to other people. A grace-filled church is a church that's reaching out to uh, its community. It's a church that transforms its community because of the love of God, the foundation of the love of God that's at work in the church. We have two passages I want to look at today. The first one comes from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
Now listen to this. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. By this, if you have love one for another. Flipping over to 1 John beginning at verse 7 in chapter 4. This is a song we taught our kids when they were little. Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides with us, and his love is perfected in us. There's much more to read there, but I'm just going to pray now, so just save a little time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is powerful to change with the help of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We come today to your word, uh, laying our souls open to you, asking that you would do a work in us. Uh, Father, by our own strength, we've tried to do it, but we acknowledge that we need the help of your Son, that we need the presence of your Holy Spirit and the power of your Holy Spirit pouring out your love continually into us. And so, Father, help us get in touch with that today and help us to see how you would like us to serve you and sacrifice for you because you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am um, part of Mission to the World. I'm one of our international directors, and quite honestly, a lot of what I do is administration. I'm a pastor at heart, but uh, you know, sometimes you've got to do the job you're given. And uh, I'm an executive, so uh, a lot of things that I do look like business, actually. And one of the things we did just recently was go through a brand uh, study, the brand of Mission to the World, which I had never encountered anything like that. I didn't know what it was about. We did a brand study. We uh, reached out to the PCA and we asked them, what comes to your mind when you hear the letters MTW? And we heard stuff back like, too big, too bureaucratic, too costly, inflexible, and these kinds of things. And we knew we had a little bit of work to do. Now, you know, branding uh, in, its, in its good sense is not trying to spin and, and trying to convince people that you're something that you're not, but it's, it's the work of trying to get your story out. And some of that may be true of us, but it's not all that's true of us. And we're, we're working on trying to get the story of Mission to the World out better to the PCA so that they can understand us. But brands are important. Um, I have a leadership brand. People understand me in a certain way. I had a, um, three of the administrators in my office pull me aside. Three, three ladies working in my area. They, first thing Monday morning on, at 8.30, they asked if they could meet with me. And that is never a good sign. And uh, we sat down in the office together and they said, Brian, you blow in here after you've been gone for 10 days, two weeks, and you start barking orders and throwing jobs around, and overwhelming us, and it is not working for us. I had a leadership brand that, you know, the way that they were understanding me, that was not godly. That was not a loving brand. 
And they, though, were loving me by moving into my world and helping to point out something that the Lord needed to change in my attitude and my way of dealing with other people. Churches have brands. Organizations have brands. You think about, for instance, all the organizations that you probably know about out there in the world, uh, and you can probably come up with their brand, whether they wanted that brand or not. For instance, if I said R.C. Sproul, what would you say is his brand? Anybody? Somebody? Holiness Holiness of God, absolutely. Campus Crusade. Evangelism on the universities of our world. Uh, World Harvest. Sonship. Sonship would be their brand. Um, And you can just go on and on and on. And churches have brands. We develop brands. Uh, We... um, we, we project the brand, for instance, and I, I don't know about your church very much, but you know, I, I might, if I was going to create a brand for your church, I might say, you know, come to Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. You can wear your shorts here, <laughs> right, to bring in the tourists, right? That would be, you know, our brand is casual. Uh, you know, you might have the brand, uh, uh, come to our church because we teach good theology. You're going to grow here in your understanding of God and your theology, You might have the brand of discipleship. Um, I know that you're going through Journey, the Journey groups, that sort of thing. That's out of Perimeter Church in Atlanta. They're very well known for their their Journey discipleship. That's a brand. But we heard something in the passage here today that's rather startling. That for all of the brands that we might like to adopt personally or as the church or as an organization, there is only one brand. There's only one thing by which the Lord has given permission to the world to judge whether or not the gospel you preach is true. There's only one brand that will hold up the veracity of your witness in this church. It is the love of God. If we are not loving one another in the church the world just looks at us and walks away because that's what they get in the world anyway. How are you different from the world? By this, all men shall know you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Not a love that we can drum up and sustain in our own flesh, but a love that is the overflow of having appropriated the love of God in our lives. That is the brand that we have to pursue and the only one that works. Now, the question is, what does that love look like? And uh, the first thing that that love, love looks like is bold honesty. It's what I described to you a few minutes ago. Three women who loved me. My favorite benediction is the ironic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, when God made his face to shine upon Isaiah, that wasn't necessarily a pleasant thing, was it? Because the holiness of God exposes his sin, and he said, I am undone, for I am an unclean man of unclean lips, and I come from an unclean people. But here's the thing. You don't want God to turn his face away from you. Because if God turns his face away from you, you haven't got a prayer. In the same way that God turns his countenance upon those he loves... 
He invades us. He brings us to a place of repentance. He conforms us unto the likeness of Christ. He exposes us to his holiness so that we can see uh, our own sin and that we have an opportunity to be conformed unto the likeness of Christ. Just as God does that, he calls us to do that in one another's lives. He calls us to lean into the difficult things, to be honest with one another, to have transparent and uh, impactful relationships with one another. One of my uh, ministry uh, memories is I was visiting in a church one time when I was on itineration as a, um, as a missionary, and I was walking down the hallway with a pastor who, out of the blue, just says to me, I'm going to split this church. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I'm going to split this church. I, there's half of this church I can't move off a dime, and half of this church that seems to love me and by the time you come back here next time, I'm going. To, this church will be two churches. So okay, thanks for sharing that. And uh, and then I left. I never said anything to anybody. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't say anything to my friends in the church. You know why? I don't want to lose my support. That's not love. Love takes the difficult things and leans in. It believes the gospel. It believes that the gospel can change things. That the Holy Spirit is real. And when you have this atmosphere of bold honesty in the church and in our relationships, we're actually manifesting the very character of God in our relationships with one another. I have a a small group, and I've always had small groups. And one of my small groups, we met on Monday mornings for breakfast and every Monday morning, one of the guys, there were about five of us, four or five, and would be on the hot seat. And uh, when you're on the hot seat, it means that we're going to talk about something that's going on in your life. You're going to be open. Talk about sin. Talk about ways that God's blessing you. We're going to share. We're going to talk. And we're going to apply the scriptures. And we're going to pray for one another. And one day we got there, and uh, it was one, one of my friend's uh, turns, and he says, kissed my secretary yesterday. And that started us down a path of helping him and helping his marriage. And they're still together. Their marriage is still together. But he confessed. And we received his confession and we loved him. We didn't reject him. We didn't throw him out of the group. But we loved him and we stood with him. And one of us went with him when he confessed to his wife what he had done. And they got counseling. And we saw the gospel at work in his heart. We saw that marriage saved. That's what love looks like. Love doesn't turn his face. When when I'm walking down the streets in whatever city I'm in all over the world, or walking in the metro in France, you know, I'll see people lining the walls of the metro, some of them drunk, some of them live there. And I just walk right by them. That's the opposite of love. When we're loving one one another in the church, we see each other. And when we see sin, we approach it. When we see something to praise, we praise it. When somebody's hurting, we minister to them. We keep our faces faced towards one another. Love also looks like radical forgiveness. 
Now, being a pastor in the church, I know the politics of the church. And I know what forgiveness looks like a lot of times is, is peace faking. You know, uh, we have uh, problems and then we say in our hearts, I forgive you, but you can't be on my committee anymore. We say, it was nothing, when it wasn't nothing. We say, I'll forgive, but I don't think I can trust you anymore. And we have lots of people walking around the church with wounds that have not been healed, with forgiveness that has not been offered. I had one particular relationship in a church with a gentleman that he and I were not able to reconcile. And as I was leaving the church, uh, he came forward, and we finally looked each other in the eye, and both of us shed tears over the fact that we hadn't reconciled and we hadn't forgiven one another. It, it took me leaving to, to get to that point. But true love looks like radical forgiveness. It looks like being willing to absorb the consequences of somebody else's sin against you and forgiving them before the Father and releasing the debt. True love looks like mutual submission. It goes counterculture for us in uh, our culture. Uh, but in Matthew twenty twenty eight, we learn that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Ephesians 5, 21, we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there Paul is actually talking about marriage, but he goes on to explain he's really talking about the church and the mystery of the church and the mystery of God's relationship with the church. So when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's talking about the way that we love one another in the church. 1 Peter 5, 5, in the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your, to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I just sold my dad's home. And uh, it didn't go too well. The market's bad right now. And I, um, I employed a realtor to help me with that. And uh, when I got to closing... I found out that uh, the buyer was actually a relative of my realtor. And we'd had a lot of negotiations along the way. And uh, none of them to my benefit. But I just figured it was a bad market and I just needed to keep moving forward. Boy, I was angry. But I've since reached out to this realtor in the love of Christ and talk with her and forgiven her. And we actually have a relationship now. I get my money back. But something more important happened. Forgiveness and reconciliation. I had to submit to my Heavenly Father in that. Because I didn't want to do that. But He was calling me by His love to submit to Him and to reach out to this person that had done me damage. Another church that I, I knew was uh, having troubles, and um, there was a rift in the church. This was back many years ago, and there were two groups in the church, and they wouldn't submit one to another. That church is no longer in existence today. I've watched it disintegrate through the years, and they finally shut down the one church and gave the property over to a new church plant, saying, hope you'll do better. For 
us to really understand the love of God at work in our congregation, we have attitudes of mutual submission to one another, humility towards one another, listening to one another, patience, kindness, forbearance towards one another. Even when there are difficulties, even when there are different perspectives on things, we're characterized by love. The world looks at us and says, man, how those people love each other. Finally, love is costly to an extreme. It looks like sacrifice. It's uh, relatively easy to reciprocate when everything is going well, but it's difficult when things are not going well. It's relatively easy to reciprocate when people are giving back to you, but when they have nothing to give back to you, it's difficult to keep it up to continue sacrificing for them. I've been talking this week a lot about stuff going on with my dad. He's in assisted living, and he's got nothing left, and uh, he's a difficult person. And God wants me to love him. But he doesn't have anything to give back to me. And I can't do that on my own. I promise you I can't. But with the help of the Holy Spirit and understanding what God has given to me through his love, being united with Christ, at least up to this point, you know, I'm reaching out to him in love and I'm willing to sacrifice for him in his situation. In the true church, believers sacrifice to help one another. There's a cost that love willingly bears. Romans 13.8 Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5.13 You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet each other in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. You know the number one reason why missionaries come home from the field? What would you think it would be? Money? No. Children's education. That is a reason why some people come home. That's not the number one reason. Number one reason why missionaries come home from the field is because they can't get along with each other. I swear to you this is the case. People are taken out of teams. They're brought home all the time because they can't get along with one another. Now, when you've got a missionary team living in a foreign context that are not mutually submissive, that are not resolving their conflicts, that are not forgiving one another, that can't figure out how to humbly submit to one another, what sort of witness do you think that makes to the community? Not a good one. It makes an awful footprint that doesn't go away for decades. And so we work really hard to help our teams know how to be good teams and to stay together, but it's still a problem. But the same thing's true for our churches back here. Same thing's true in our marriages and in our families. The number one way that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ is by demonstrating the reality of that gospel at work in our family right here in the church, in our home family, in our marriages, in our relationships with, the, with, with our kids. So that the world looks on that and says, I've never seen that before. That's the number one way that the church grows. God adds daily to our body when we're loving 
one another. I've, my home church is uh, in um, Augusta, Georgia, Lake Mont. And um, when Lori and I were first married, uh, the pastor had Alzheimer's and he couldn't remember my name. He called me Steve. <clears throat> and I knew he was going to call me Steve during the wedding. So we just accepted that. But this was at the time when this was at the time when the PCA and the PCUSA were splitting, and there were certain conditions that churches had to meet in order to protect the health benefits and retirement of their pastors, and they had to come out in a certain way, and they had to come out in a certain time, and Sam had to stay in that pulpit in order for him to be treated well as the separation happened. So the church consented to let him stay in the pulpit while he was declining in his Alzheimer's. Lori and I were new believers and newly married, and we were just dying in that church. We'd come to church every Sunday, and, and it was like he had nothing for us. And so we went to one of the elders one day, Billy Belding, and uh, we said, Billy, you know, we need to be fed. We're just not getting fed here. We're going to have to move churches. And he said, oh, so, you're here in the church because you want to be fed. And that's primarily what you're looking for. Why don't you think about being in the church to have a ministry and see what happens? We did. We got involved with the youth and we started having a ministry. You know, we started living a little bit more like this. And all of a sudden, Sam's sermons didn't mean so much to us anymore. When I saw Sam standing up in front of the church, I thought to myself, here's a church that will love a pastor through anything. Here's a church where wounded and limping people can come and receive the gospel of grace. That little church is still there. They've not knocked the doors off of anything, but I just approved some missionaries last week that came out of that church and they're heading overseas. They still have a vital ministry because you can be in that church and know the love of God. Paul Coyster tells a story uh, for himself on um, preaching the gospel of grace. He used to preach at uh, uh, Covenant Seminary and at Reformed Theological Seminary. And he said it was like pulling teeth to get any of the professors to actually come out and, and preach in chapel. Chapel happens every day. Sermons take a long time to prepare. And he was one of the few that would actually preach every day. And the first thing he said to me that was actually very helpful to me is he said, I was the only one who would preach because I had decided that sermons don't have to be perfect. Everybody else thought sermons had to be perfect, but I didn't. So I, I, just, I could preach with freedom. But he preached on the gospel of grace. And there was a guy in town who would come to the chapel every single day. And so he heard Paul preach a lot. And finally, after hearing Paul preach a bunch of times, he walked up to him and he said, don't you know how to preach anything but grace? And Paul thought about it for a second and he said, actually, there's nothing to preach but grace. Didn't really satisfy the guy. And he left out and kind of drifted away, didn't come back. Paul saw him years later at a conference. The man walked up to him with tears in his eyes and just said, I've learned there's nothing but grace. Now, grace has many facets, and not every sermon is going to sound like living in grace. But the foundation is the love of God. Our response to it is surrendering to that love. Not 
surrendering in terms of, I know that God is going to make me suffer, he's capricious, and he just wants to be mean to me. Surrendering in the sense of turning towards Christ and receiving the wonderful gifts that he has for us. Do you know how you can tell true repentance? It leads to joy. True repentance leads to joy. Um, one last story, I'm going to quit. Went to uh, Presbytery a couple of years ago. I had made a mistake. I had uh, fired a guy on the phone. Um, he had done a really poor job at uh, a certain event, and I gotten a lot of bad reports on him, and the consensus of everybody involved was this guy was not going to make it as a missionary, and we need to let him go. So after consulting a little bit, I called him on the phone, and I told him that we weren't going to continue with him. He got a little angry for some reason. Maybe it's a bad thing to be fired on the phone. I don't know. After you've already given your life the way that you have and everything. So he's a little mad at me. And this thing blew up and blew up. And he was just madder and madder. And finally, it, it, what happens when that happens is it goes to Presbytery. And Presbytery puts together a committee. And then you go before the committee and present your case. And then they decide who is in the wrong. And then they call for repentance of the parties. Maybe they're both wrong. To prepare for this meeting, I prepared a notebook. I got every piece of correspondence. I remembered every conversation I had with this guy. I had a notebook, and I was determined that if he was going to attack me in Presbytery, I was going to get there, and I was going to blow his socks off. He didn't have a chance. Paul went with me on this trip. And we, got, we get there. He had, he had actually known that I was making this notebook. We get there in the, in the room. We got three, four guys over there, just me and Paul over here. And Paul says, we're really sorry. We really messed up. And we want to ask your forgiveness. And I said, I didn't say it, but I was thinking, what about the stupid notebook? Do you know how much time I spent on this, getting ready for this case? And you're just going to throw it all away? And you know what happened? The other guys broke down and they said, we forgive you. And we didn't need to talk about the case. We didn't need to unravel what happened because there was mutual forgiveness and mutual submission. And you know what? We're in relationship with those folks now and there's joy in that relationship. True repentance leads to joy. I hope through this weekend, a lot of folks here today that weren't part of the Living in Grace Conference uh, please don't hear us saying that uh, if you know grace, the only thing you do is, is work because that's not the message. But I hope that you will wrestle with, does, do you really believe that God loves you? Wrestle with that. And look at some practical ways that might be working out in your life. Look at some practical areas in your life where you may need to be submitting to the Lord. Where you may need to be submitting to one another in the church. Think about some unreconciled relationships that you might have in the church. And for once, believe the gospel. And believe the Holy Spirit. And rather than turning your face away and acting like everything's okay, when you know it's not, have the courage to approach one another in the gospel and see the love of God grow and be a witness to our community. Thank you for having me here. Let me just close in a word of prayer. Father, I, I don't know how to live in grace, and so I am asking you for your Holy Spirit, and I'm sure there are others here just asking for your Holy Spirit to help us. Father, we're obtuse. We don't even see our sin. Examine our hearts. Search us. Help us to see. 
Father, we are tightly holding on to many things in our lives. Loosen our grip. Give us courage. Help us to be fearless because of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.